From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vegan Indeterminate. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. And I'm your co-host, Marcus Shera. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Betke. Within our esteemed department, he needs no introduction, but I will do my best to introduce him anyhow. He is a university professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason, director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and the BB&T Professor for the Study of Capitalism at the Mercatus Center. You've probably heard of mainstream economics, but Dr. Betke eschews that in favor of mainline economics, which is a path he sees from Smith through Austria to Fairfax and Bloomington, more or less. He has written countless books and articles and has been hanging around George Mason University since the 80s. He's a tremendous storyteller, so we will be devoting two episodes to his history of our esteemed department. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Becky. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So, uh, no offense, but we wanted you on Loose Vegan Indeterminate to tell us about the history of Mason economics because you've been here for most of it. Uh, so, uh, how did you arrive at Mason? Well, it's a, you know, it begins, you know, back in undergraduate school. I went to a tiny school in western Pennsylvania, Grove City College, and I had a fantastic economics professor. And he, uh, over the years, uh, I became more and more convinced that I wanted to do this and more, study more in-depth economics. Um, I didn't do that right away when I graduated. I actually worked for a little bit, and then I went back to school. But while I was uh, deliberating on different schools, I was looking for a place that would allow me to study the ideas that I cared about. And uh, um, George Mason's um, had a few fortuitous events happen. One of them was they established a Ph.D. program for a very young university. And in the midst of doing that, they merged uh, programs, research and education programs from Virginia Tech and from Rutgers University. And so that all came here and was established in the early 80s. And in 1984, I started graduate school here. Um, and I graduated from Grove City in, in 83. Um, but I started graduate school in 84. My wife and I, um, who got married right after we got out of college, we moved down here. And she taught elementary school in Old Town, Alexandria. And I you know, started my graduate career here working at this a place called the Center for the Study of Market Processes. And that was in 1984, and I was here till 1988. And then uh, from 1988 to 1998, I was not at George Mason. I from most of that time I was teaching at New York University. Um, and then I came uh, back in 1998 um, and uh, took over uh, classes from two professors that were very important in my own life. One of them being James Buchanan and the other one being Don Lavoie. And so I took over both of their classes to teach um, in the graduate program here, and then I rebuilt my career. So I've been here since 1998, um, and, uh, but there was a 10-year gap. So I was here in the, in the beginning, not too na- soon after they started the PhD program, but then I was gone for 10 years, and then I came back. So uh, I do feel this is my home in many ways, yeah. So l- let's dial back the clock a little bit and go back to um, right before undergrad or, or during undergrad, what was it about economics specifically and uh, the way that it was taught and the things that you learned that really uh, galvanized your interest and, and made you want to become an economist? Well, <clears throat> like a lot of people in, uh, of my age, the late 1970s uh, were a period of tremendous economic stagnation. Uh, there was high unemployment. There was gas shortages. We just celebrated the um, the f- uh, anniversary of the Miracle on Ice. You mm-hmm. know? And if you go and see the movie Miracle, they show about the malaise that was in the United States during that time. Well, that's like what I lived through. That was uh-huh. the, uh, the period of time. And uh, like a lot of kids my age, I didn't really give it much thought. And uh, but um, I, I had to get a job. Uh, in the in the summer, and I, I knew um, guys. I, I played a lot of sports, and so I knew guys in the playground, and they uh, steered me towards a pool company in New Jersey, and I got a job digging pools with a group of other people, but I was the youngest person 
on the uh, crew. And they used to like, and I was also going off to college, so they used to like to make fun of me, call me college boy and all these things like that. And one of the things that they made me do was siphon the gasoline. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I, I hated this, but I had to siphon because we had to take gas from one truck to put in another truck. Otherwise, we would have had to wait online. And if we had to wait online at 730 in the morning, we would have been waiting for an hour to an hour and a half before we could go do a job. And so we had to get going. So that what we would do is we'd siphon gasoline and we'd leave the truck behind that we siphoned from. And then the, the people that just worked in the showroom and stuff, they would take and wait online and do it. So every day, siphon gasoline back and forth. It was terrible. And this really annoyed me. Well, then I was getting ready to to go off to college, uh, I had to show up early because I was playing sports at the time, and so I had to go back to college early. So I told my boss that, uh, you know, I wasn't going to be in that last week because I had to go and buy this stuff so that I could go to college and pack and all these things like that. So I went in on the Friday to get my pay, and I had to knock on the door and get in. There was a bunch of shenanigans going on with him and uh, we don't have to go into. But anyway, I, I, uh, I, 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 he finally opens up the door and he says to me, you know, why, what are you doing here? And I said, look, uh, I told you, you know, I, I'm going off to college and so I need to pick up my pay for last week. Well, they hadn't cut me a check. Because they forgot. Absence, you know, didn't make the heart grow fonder. <laughs> so he says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Come here and follow me. And he takes me back. And he, he opens up a, a, like a lockbox that has cash in it. And he goes and he pays me my cash. 40 hours a week, minimum wage. It was roughly around $170 is what he did. So he hands me the money in my mm-hmm. hand. Now, I've been getting checks all summer, but I never even looked at them. You know, I had no idea, you know, what my real pay was. All I knew is I got this check and I put it in the bank and now I had like, you know, college money, right? That mm-hmm. was like, you know, that's all I was thinking about. This guy hands me the cash. So I have it in my hands. I turn away. I say, thanks a lot. I go, I guess he grabs me. He's, he had these big hands. He grabs me and he takes the cash away from me. He goes, I got to take withholding out. And he pulls out, I'll never forget, two twenties, forty dollars he took out, which it must be absurd, right? Again, like I didn't know the calculation, but he took out $40 out of $170 and he takes it out and he goes, he sticks it in his, he had a silk robe on, he sticks it in the pocket <laughs> of the silk robe and he goes, withholding. And I like look at him and I'm like, you know, I'm walking and I, I didn't want to get in a fight with this guy because he would have killed me. And so I was like, okay, I left. So now that experience is in my head. I have gas lines. Why the hell are there gas lines? There shouldn't be gas lines. And my other experience is someone taking cash away from me, you know, that I earned. Uh-huh. So what's going on here? Who, who's taking hands away? So I go off to college. I want to be a high school coach. So I'm in an, a, a series of classes, but one of those classes that you had to take was econ. And I'm sitting in the back of the room in econ. I have no interest in economics whatsoever. And my professor was this great dynamic professor, right? He was just a great lecturer and everything like that. And he explains why it is that the United States has gas shortages having to do with price controls that run gasoline. And I was like, it was like, oh, my God, that's why? And then, you know, about six weeks later, he's talking about various different things having to do with tax policy and whatnot. And he explains about the taxing thing. And I'm like... That's just like Tony. He was like tax man, you know, like that. And so I was hooked. I was uh-huh. hooked. Economics explained both why the gas lines were and what's wrong with Tony scooping away my money and what the effect <laughs> of that is on me in terms of my, you know, incentive to work and everything. Which you can't remember is in the late 1970s, the tax, marginal tax rates were really high. Uh-huh. So, you know, there was a lot of disincentives to work. And we had this big problem with, you know, work and stagnant economy and all these things like that. And so this, my professor, Hans Senholz was putting all this in, in uh, like perspective for me, and then Milton Friedman's "Free to Choose" came out, and I, I'm 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 probably rushing the timing a little bit, you mm-hmm. know. But "Free Free Choose" came out, and then I like you know just absorbed that. Uh, it was amazing uh, to me, and and uh, I became completely into economics. Like every spare moment that I had. I was reading economics books and I was asking people, which before that, you know, I didn't read. I wasn't that kind of student in high school or, or even, you know, just the way I thought about things. But this experience and then my teacher and then reading these works that made the world seem to make sense to me, uh, you know. And so that's the fall of 1979. 
uh, in the spring of 80, I'm reading Free to Choose. And then I'm reading, you know, Mises and Hazlitt and all these great thinkers. And I'm, I'm getting so excited. And then so by the fall of 1980, when Ronald Reagan is, is running for president, uh, you know, I was pushing for like the libertarian candidate. And I remember it was my first time I could vote in an election. And the election comes along. My dad calls me. Which, by the way, at that time, you didn't have cell phones and you didn't have phones in your dorm room. You would, ha- you're, you would have a, a, like a pay phone at the end of a hallway in your dorm. And so you would go out there and so someone would say, like, hey, Pete, your dad's calling you or whatever. And then you have to go to the pay phone or you would call from the pay phone. So I'm talking to my dad and my dad says, so who did you vote for? And I'm like, I voted for Ed Clark. And there's <laughs> silence on the other end of their phone. And my father says – you might as well have voted for Daffy Duck. Who the <laughs> hell is Ed Clark? And, you know, I'm trying to tell him this is this great libertarian revolution. Anyway, uh, but that's how fast it was, you know. So from the fall of of 79, absolutely, like, no knowledge but this experience to the fall of 1980, you know, thinking that, like, we had to have market-oriented reforms in order to be able – and market-oriented reforms even more than Ronald Reagan. Mm. So Ronald Reagan was weak sauce compared to, like, <laughs> you know, the true stuff. And that's a pretty quick transformation. But then after that, I mean, that's the last time I, I you know, was had any kind of political, you know, interest or whatever. Because after that, all of my effort was on, you know, getting to know and understand these arguments even more and more. And I made a trip to the Foundation for Economic Education, and I – um I used $200 of my own money. Uh, this is in 19, you know, uh, 1980 or 81 uh, to buy up as many books as I could from Fee uh, to bring back home with me. Uh, and they were like Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. And, you know, I bought all these classic books. Um, and the one other thing I'll say about Senholtz, because I'm, I'm stressing the libertarian free market angle of it. But the thing about Senholtz is that he uh, – now, I'm not saying that he – didn't teach us to read our opponents the way like a lawyer would read your opponent, but he didn't not let you read the opponents. So we had to read Marx, we had to read Veblen, and we had to read Keynes Hmm. and Galbraith. Galbraith was big on his thing. And you Mm -hmm. had to read all of those guys in their original. So it wasn't like just reading Robert Hallburner to like get what – Veblen or Marx or Keynes say it was literally like you had to read Theory of the Leisure Class. You had to read, you know, Marx's, you know, Capital or whatever excerpts from, you know, his big books or whatever. And you had to read the general theory. Like the general theory was a book we had to read. And then I read a ton of Galbraith because he had us always like, you know, reading Galbraith to contrast with Friedman and everything. So I would say every single time that you would read a Hazlitt, you'd have to read one of the other ones. Mm-hmm. If, every time you read Mises, you'd have to read one of the other ones. And every time you read Friedman, you'd have to read one of the other ones. And so it was this. Now, what's interesting is he didn't like Hayek very much. Oh, so so we didn't read much Hayek as a, as a, at, at Grove City. Uh, I read Road to Serfdom, but I didn't really have a, a tremendous reaction to it uh-huh. because Senholtz told me that he used to describe uh, Hayek as a leaker. <laughs> that Hayek was a leaker. He, he was a bad defender of the and, – and, and Hayek was equated with John Stuart Mill. So in Senholtz's world, John uh, John Baptiste de Say, J.B. Say, was a more important classical economist than – so Adam Smith, then Say, and then Ricardo and other people, but not Mill. And the reason was is that Mill, in his mind, was weak, okay? Uh-huh. And in the modern free market people, Hayek was weak compared to Mises or even Friedman – or Hazlitt. So he really, my teacher really pushed Hazlitt a lot. So I read a ton of Hazlitt and uh, like pretty much all of Hazlitt's books that were available at the time. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I, I got seduced by the ideas. Mm-hmm. I was very, very excited about the ideas. And you had that teacher, Hans Senholz, that made the difference. Yeah, and there was only four professors in the department. Okay. Uh, one professor was uh, very religious and he taught a lot about religion as much as economics in his classes. So I only took him for one class. His name is Tom Rose. And he even wrote a book called Christian Economics and things like that. And um, um, so I didn't really 
it's I, I have no problem with people of faith, but I wanted to learn economics by the time I took him, and he wasn't teaching me economics. I was mm-hmm. I was learning Bible passages basically, and and so it was it was an interesting education, but it's not like what I wanted to do. Uh, and then I had two older professors, one a guy named P.J. Fair and another one named Charlie Geyer, both of whom were students of Senholtz that then went to NYU and did their master's degrees taking classes with Mises and then came back. <laughs> and, uh, and they had businesses on the side. You know, it's a small liberal arts college. So these are guys that were like local businessmen teaching economics. <laughs> but Senholtz was the, the main teacher, and he taught – a heavy load so it's not like he didn't teach a lot and so i had him i basically majored in Senholtz, <laughs> uh, and and it was a phenomenal experience and he had visitors come in all the time and i i apologize for going on but uh, yeah. i'll explain in a second the other thing was is that Senholtz had a graduate program um he it's not accredited it, it's called the international college um you can look it up on wikipedia and Senholtz was one of the uh, supervisors and it was very popular site uh, at that time for students from Latin America and from Europe that didn't want to go the traditional route of a graduate school to get their PhDs through through this international college and so by the time I was a junior um, I was I demonstrated that I was really into economics um, uh, and I was still playing a lot of sports and, uh, you know, I was on a sports team and I was uh, involved with my fraternity. I was enjoying college. I love I love college. And um, Senholtz comes up to him and asks me whether or not I want to join the graduate group as the only undergraduate. Mm-hmm. And his he tells me. So I'm thrilled because now I'm going to get a chance to talk about ideas with other people who really, you know, are devoting their life to these ideas. And he says you can join under two conditions. He says, one, you must keep up with the reading or we kick you out. And he says, and you must learn to wear a proper pair of trousers. Uh, because at that time, we, the athletic department would wash our gym clothes, right? Uh-huh. Like, so we didn't have to wash them. Okay. So I only wore like the athletic stuff because I would then put it in. It would get washed. I'd get it back. You know? so, so I didn't I, – this is what I wore all the time was sweatpants and you know, warm-up suits and stuff. And he says, you must wear – so I had to go out to the store. I'd go out and I'd buy myself a pair of Dickies and a button-down. And every Wednesday night from 7 to 9 – I'd be part of the graduate program. And I did that for the last three semesters of myself, my my uh, spring of my junior year and then all of my senior year. And in the spring of my junior year, I saw the very first doctoral dissertation that I ever saw. It was a guy named Juan Kachanowski, and he came and defended his dissertation on the use of mathematics and economics. And I went and saw that, and I watched what that experience was like, and I talked to the different people about what does it mean to write a dissertation. And I ended up by starting to write not – before that, I wrote little op-eds in the college newspaper you know, about this or that. But it was that experience that then got me interested in wanting to maybe write you know, bigger papers and like more like uh, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, sorry for the long with it. Oh yeah, no problem. I mean, yeah. it's it was interesting hearing about uh, Hans Senholtz because I, I mean, you you have I'm sure incredible Hans Senholtz stories. I have a Hans Senholtz story though, and it's it's pretty wild actually. So it's not directly him, but um, I was on the metro over the summer, and I when I uh, to get to my internship, and and in doing that, I bring books to read on the metro to pass the time because I'm on there for about you know 45 minutes. All right. And so I had Joseph Schumpeter's um, Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy. And so I was reading that on the Metro. And this guy comes up to me and he goes, hey, uh, what are you reading there? And I said, you know, Schumpeter. And I, and I explained it to him. And he goes, oh, well, you know, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, where do you go to school? And so I got talking about George Mason. I got talking about economics, all things like that. And then at the end, he, he gave me, uh, uh, you know, I was like, oh, I, I didn't catch your name. He said, oh, my name's Roland. And I said, oh, my name's, my name's Dominic. And, and, and uh, he gave me gave me his phone number and so uh because he said there was there was some uh, mentorship program that his company did uh that george mason students might be interested in and i'm the president of econ society so i said hey i know people who might be interested in that and so i do that and then later on he he texts me his full name and he says it's roland senholtz and i was like wait a minute 
there's not very many people named Sendholtz. It's yeah. probably, I'm like, are you related to Hans Sendholtz? It's his grandson. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. crazy. We just met on the metro. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. No, I've never, I never met the grandson, but I know stories about him from when I, <laughs> and he uh, he's uh, very skilled in lots of different languages, and wow. he's got a lot of talents. I, I remember hearing different stories. Uh, Senholtz, was, that's a small world story. I thought uh-huh. you were going to tell a slightly different one, which is that Senholtz taught this little tiny college, Grove City College, 2,200 students in western Pennsylvania, so rural Pennsylvania. And uh, if you look at the number of people, when he retired, he taught there for 30 years, and then he went to become president of the Foundation for Economic Education. When he retired, there was over 300 people that paid their own way, former students, to go to his retirement dinner. Wow. Now, you would think that for someone like that, they'd have to be someone that was very giving with their time and dynamic, like, say, like someone like Tom Ristisi or something. Uh-huh. Senholtz wasn't like that at all. <laughs> like, literally, when you tried to ask him questions, he would, like, run away from you. <laughs> and so, so it, it's a very fascinating thing because it was all just the ideas. But if you go, you look at the different people over the years that were Senholtz students that went on to have major impact. So, for example, um, you know, uh, Scott Bullock who is one of the main people at the Institute for Justice. He was a student of Senholtz. Mm-hmm. Matt Kibbe, uh, who runs Freedom Works, was, was uh, you know, over at, uh, uh, was, was a student of Senholtz. Alex Chafwin, who used to run Atlas and now is with um, uh, Acton Institute. You know, he, he, he was a Senholtz student. Wow. Uh, Dick Lowry, who ran the SCAFE Foundation, he was a Senholtz student. Walter Grinder, who was one of the main people in charge of IHS, he was a Senholtz student. Uh, you know, so the, uh, you know, the, the array of people is just phenomenal when you get to know it. And they, you know, all went to this little tiny college and what an impact. So one of the things that Senholtz taught me was the, so personally, I'm very romantic about higher ed. I understand all the issues that like Brian Kaplan talks about or, you know, what other people talk about in in universities. But I'm very romantic about higher ed because to me, it was transformative experience in my life. And I had a transformative teacher. And I think that that's, there's, it's, it's a calling. Like, you know, so like, Senholtz's ability to do that and to communicate knowledge and and make for people that could have intelligent conversation that could weigh different sides of an argument, learn how to write coherent sentences and make learn how to make arguments, learn how to marshal evidence and all that stuff. He did that. And the power of that, I think, helps transform. Mm -hmm. And so to me, Senholtz was this kind of transformative professor and school can be transformative. And I, you know, I'm very romantic about that idea, and I don't want to give up on that. And so to me, it can't just be signaling. It can't be, you know, all these other things because it can be this transformative thing. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to George Mason. When you got here, uh, what was the campus like? Who were the uh, big... Uh, big name professors in the department. What what particular professors attracted you, and what kind of things were they researching? Yeah, so when I made my decision to come to uh, George Mason, I was basically narrowed down between going to NYU, where Israel Kirzner was teaching, uh, to Auburn, where Roger Garrison uh, was teaching, uh, to Rutgers, just because it would have kept me in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, I did also visit the New School for Social Research, um, uh, as a possibility because I was interested in studying ideas and social philosophy and, and whatnot, and then George Mason. And when I came down at George Mason, Buchanan and uh, the group from VPI was moving uh, and had moved uh, the year before. My senior year of college is when they moved to George Mason. And, uh, but a couple years before that, the Center for Study of Market Processes had moved from Rutgers and I was really interested for a variety of reasons that we don't have to go into here, but it is an interesting story in and of itself uh, in the Soviet experience. And uh, so I was very, by the time after I got into economics and go through the Friedman thing I was talking about, I became obsessed with what's known as the socialist economic calculation debate and the Soviet experience. And Don Lavoy uh, was here, and he had moved from being a graduate student at NYU to take an assistant professorship here. And while I was in undergraduate school, he edited a special issue of a journal on the socialist calculation debate that I read. And so I was really enamored with what Lavoy was doing. 
And so I was attracted to come study with Don and study that issue because I thought he was the best person in the world to do it. But the good news was if I came here, I'd also get a chance to study with Jim Buchanan, who in many ways was sort of kind of, in my mind at least, the Ludwig von Mises of my time, you know, sort of this towering intellectual figure that's unappeachable. And I wanted to, you know, uh, sort of learn everything I could from him. And uh, so he was he was here. Um, I was introduced to his work uh, by a guy named Tom DiLorenzo, who wrote an article in the Freeman Foundation for Economic Educations um, on uh, the calculus of consent and the founding fathers. And I read that. And so I really liked the, what, what Buchanan was arguing, the calculus of consent. And so I was going to have a chance to do that. So that's why I came here. And then when I got here, so this is 1984, I show up. And because it's, it's, uh, I'm a first-year student, um, but Buchanan teaches second-year students, I overload my classes so I can take Buchanan, right? So I'm, I'm sitting there, and I sat in the front row as if I was, like, you know, learning from, you know, the master or whatever. And I wrote down every word, and I was very excited about that. But Gordon Tullock was here as well, so I had a chance to study with him. And then um, also the next year, Kenneth Bowling showed up. And the reason why Kenneth Bowling is interesting is because when I was an undergraduate and we had to do a year-long history of economic thought as an undergraduate student. Now I was saying about Say and all of them. That's from that year-long history. That was a requirement that Senholtz had. He built the curriculum. And so history of thought and logic. So we had to learn symbolic logic and other kinds of things. That was part of like what it meant to get your major. And uh, I read an article by Kenneth Bowling called After Samuelson, Who Needs Adam Smith? And in his argument, everyone, everyone needs Adam yes, Smith. <laughs> yeah, that's that's his argument is that uh, everyone needs Adam Smith because Adam Smith's scientific potential isn't exhausted yet. You know, so Samuelson basically and Stigler, they had a George Stigler. They kind of had an idea that whatever is good in the ancients is embodied in the moderns. And Bolding countered that. And the reason why that was such an important thing was Bolding's the second John Bates Clark medal winner. So the first John Bates Clark medal winner is Paul Samuelson. So this is an elite <laughs> economist taking on an elite economist, right, and challenging it. And so I understood enough about economics profession at the time that that – and so now all of a sudden Bolding's here, and he's teaching his book on great books in economics. So I signed up right away and then studied with Bolding as well. So I had great professors. So I would say yeah. Lavoy, uh, Buchanan – uh, Karen Vaughn was a great professor uh, in, in my, and a very important. Victor Vanberg, who had come over from Germany and was studying here. Uh, Gordon Tullock, obviously. And then about midway through graduate school, maybe a little, maybe it's after the first year, Henry Manny moved and they developed the Law and Economics Center. And so that also was encouraged for us in the econ to interact with Henry Manny and the different people in the Law and Economics Center. Mm -hmm. So that we learned, like, through that, we learned a lot about COS and, like, COSing and economics and whatnot. In fact, law and economics was one of my, you know, fields that I, when I first started teaching, I used to teach that class. Um, and uh, industrial organization was another one. And so the overlap between them because of antitrust law. Anyway, it was just mm -hmm. like an intellectual smorgasbord here. And so I loved every minute of graduate school. It was phenomenal, and the professors and were not great. to mention the literal giant Walter Williams. Oh yeah, but but so the thing that's fascinating about Walter is that he was a towering figure, no doubt. I mean him, <laughs> and also and also uh, Jim Bennett at that time uh, ran a, a labor economics program, and uh, so it was an Olin. So he was an Olin professor. Bennett was as was. Uh, 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 Walter and Bennett also worked with DiLorenzo on doing applied mm. public choice stuff. And so, but Bennett didn't teach uh, graduate students. He was just doing his research. And Walter also at that time didn't teach undergraduates, but I mean, graduate students. But what Walter did do was he taught the undergraduates and they didn't, and they had him on a cable access show. And so, cause now, you know, they have online education. It's all different. But at that time they would, they would pick sometimes a lecturer and they would put it on like the local cable access. You know, there's only like 10 channels or whatever. And then this like funky one and Walter would be on there and all of us graduate students, we couldn't wait to watch him because he was like a stand up comedian. <laughs> you guys have had him in class. So you know what I mean? But like, we used to love it, but it wasn't like he wasn't 
part of our education, but he was like a major part of our culture. And uh-huh. so we used to sit there and, uh, you know, watch him all the time. And then, you know, we'd see him in the department and we try to ask him questions and, and about debates that he was having. I remember he debated Jesse Jackson, you know, at sort of this big thing. And, you know, and uh, so we'd ask him about that experience. He would be on the um, TV. They used to have a show. Um, it was uh, um, it's not fire, not firing line. Uh, that's the one with Bill Buckley. This is, I think it was called Crossfire. Mm-hmm. And what it was, was it would have like Michael Kinsley, who was a, a left-wing journalist, and then the other guy who was a right-wing journalist. Mm-hmm. Maybe it might have been Pat Buchanan or someone like that. Yeah. And then they would have a guest on, and then they just argue. And it was like ridiculous, because <laughs> they never really like talked. They would just like, you know, eh, like it, but it was entertaining. But we, when Walter was on it, we used to all like flock around the television together <laughs> and like watch it, because it was like Walter William, Williams. Williams and, was on, he was on Crossfire? All the time. Oh my yeah, yeah. God. It was hilarious. He was, it was like is, is that on is that on YouTube? Can I find that? I'm sure you can, but <laughs> but he says really inappropriate things, <laughs> and, and, but using economic logic. And uh-huh. So we all love that. I mean, yeah. because it was like he was like you know economics. He was like you know poking everyone in the eye, and so we were like you know economics is great. Yeah, yeah sorry. So, yeah, no problem. Yeah, so, he was a great te- he was a great public spokesperson for the logic of economics. Mm-hmm. So all those people were there, um, and and it was it was a really remarkable intellectual environment. But what was campus actually like back then? Because this university was not anywhere near as big as it is today, right? Yeah. So when I showed up at George Mason in 1984, I think you can double check this, but my memory is is that we had 9,000 students. Okay. And then uh, Buchanan won the Nobel Prize in 1986, and when I left in '88, I think that we had roughly 15. A thousand or sixteen thousand students. When I came back in 1998, it was over 25,000 students, mm-hmm. and it grew to over 35,000 students or whatever. So it's amazing. But the biggest difference uh, with the campus physically is two things. Uh, one of them is, is that there was no dorms on the campus. So to speak of, there was some dorms, but there were, but it was a commuter college. Mm-hmm. Vast majority of students were not. Uh, living on campus here. They were commuting. And as you know now, we've built a lot of dorms and there's people on campus and we're like, it's, it still in many ways has a feel of a commuter campus, but it has a, a, a very large campus body, people here. Well, uh, in addition to that, none of these buildings that you're sitting in here were here. <laughs> this was just woods. And the campus ended at Robinson Hall. And wow. so imagine like walking, not now you see the construction, you know, but imagine before the construction was going on, you're Robinson Hall and you go forward to like all the way to Fenwick, which is the old library before the construction of that. And then keep going to the East building and the West building. And then they had trailers. They had these giant <laughs> trailers that you would teach your classes in. And I would, when I first started teaching principles of economics, I taught in these giant trailers. Wow. And when I was giving a cost lecture one time, uh, the student reached up, you know, it's, it's, it was, the room was really weird. It was really wide and not very deep. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't really see the student all the way over here, but I was lecturing. I, I'm sure I was only lecturing for about five minutes. And a kid over here screams out, says, Professor, we're out of time. And they had taken the clock off and moved the, the, the second hand around to try to tell me. And I looked at my watch and I was like, no, 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 we're on my time here. You know, like that. But uh, the uh, it was a boring lecture because it was on co- the derivation of cost curves. Right? Okay. Which is, you know, yeah. And uh, so I understand that. But uh, anyway, it was a um, um, the Patriot Center opened up uh, about, you know, midway through my graduate career. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, had a fantastic first opening game, which was uh, Len Bias. Uh, played here, the great basketball uh, yeah. player from Maryland, and he uh-huh. set a record which, you know, held for years. But when I first was in campus, they played in the old gym, not the field house across the street, but the old gym, the rack. And uh, they had a star player named uh, Carlos Yates, and uh, but it was like a high school gym, is, okay, you know yeah. what they played in. Uh-huh. And then they moved into this Patriot Center, and uh, you know they they started having pretty good basketball teams, but then you know. Uh, they they sort of fell off. How did they justify an arena that size for a university that size? Um, because uh, they were building. George Johnson was a very innovative president. Okay. And his idea was that they were going to build a super uh, basketball program. And um, 
a couple things happen with that which are, are interesting uh one of them is the uh the guy who is now uh, uh what does he coach at rick barnes uh i think tennessee maybe is where he's at i don't know not texas that's smart so anyway i don't yeah. know where rick barnes is at right now but he i think it's tennessee but he uh was here and he took a team to the ncaa tournament okay and their star player went to the nba he actually is still i think the only player that was on an nba roster more from the summer and everything and uh, the idea was is that they were going to build a, a, a first-class basketball program because uh, Johnson wanted to build in three areas. Uh, he was going to build in the economics because of location. He was going to build the law school because of location. He was going to build the policy school because of location. And then in addition to that, he wanted to build in sports recognition teams that didn't cost money like a football team Mm -hmm. right and so basketball doesn't cost as much as having a football team so basketball was a major thing track and field was another one thing that he built in and then he himself was an english person so they went out and they tried to build some some really strong people in english and in comparative literature and um and anyway that's what they did and they they established these things called these robinson professors Mm -hmm. which still exist today and many people that are very famous were brought in to be professors in those robinson programs and now we can record in the johnson center yeah Yeah. now you can yeah. yeah and so george johnson was really really entrepreneurial guy when he came here and he did that and he helped marshal that school and then you get you know, Alan Merton and the other ones that have gone. And now we just have a new president. We're very excited yeah. to see what he's going to do with the, the next thing. And I, I'm very excited about him. He's a he's a scientist, uh, engineering uh, dean coming from Irvine and uh, uh, very positive uh, vibe about what's going on with that. But so for a small school like that, that was just growing, it was a new it was a it was just it had just become a university. What attracted um the Center for the Study of Market Processes, which we now know as Mercatus, what attracted them to to um, to this university? What's the kind of story there? So, I mean, it's it's a very complicated story, like all good stories go. But I'll try to be very easy with it, which is um, that uh, there was a, a man who was a department chairman named William Snavely, who uh, was uh, sympathetic. Uh, he he's a PhD from University of Virginia. His his uh, father uh, was a a longtime faculty member at University of Virginia. Sorry, and um, um, so he was here, and he was able in his capacity as department chairman to hire Walter Williams, mm-hmm. to hire Jim Bennett, um, and then uh, they were able to hire Karen Vaughn. Uh, and Karen Vaughn uh, was here and a rising faculty member. And she knew the people both at Rutgers and she knew the people at, uh, at, at Virginia Tech. And uh, what happened was is that George Johnson wanted to build the economics department, so there was faculty openings. Mm-hmm. And so they ended up by being able to hire a bunch of different faculty, some of whom were the people from Rutgers. They were all assistant professors. And then so now they had a little group, and they were just starting a, a brand-new Ph.D. program, the state authorized it and Buchanan became disillusioned with his situation at VPI and the unique thing about both Buchanan and Vernon Smith is that they didn't move as individual scholars they moved with their whole research teams and uh, that's important because a lot of scholars just move as an individual and then okay so they go to another school but what they were doing was they were moving their whole research program and so Buchanan, this is in the 80s, Buchanan moved the Center for Study of Public Choice. And when he moved the Center for Study of Public Choice, you brought not only Jim Buchanan, but you also brought, you know, Gordon Tullock, and you brought a whole bunch of other people who were really, really top publishers. Someone like Bob Tullison eventually was here. And Tullison, you know, so, so the number of people that were associated that were brought into the place transformed the school because now all of a sudden you had uh, – the analogy to basketball would be that uh, you're the Miami Heat, and now all of a sudden, not only do you get LeBron James, but you also get Chris Bosh and you know Ray Allen and a bunch of other people. And then all of a sudden, you're like, hey, we can win championships now. And that's kind of what happened at Mason. They didn't just bring in Buchanan. They brought in the whole network of people, all of whom were very accomplished people. And they transformed the economics department. And then within a, a short period of time, Buchanan came, I think, in 82 or 83, let's say 83, but in 1986, he wins the Nobel Prize, and that puts George Mason on the map, you know, in the intellectual world. 
and then there's a debate whether or not Gordon Tullock should have also won it, you know, and then Bolding's here. And so everyone's like, oh, is Bolding going to win it? Because, you know, he was a bon John Bates Clark, you know, medal winner. And a lot of the faculty like Karen Vaughn and Bob Tullison and others were presidents of the Southern Economic Association. They won prestigious awards. They were publishing in the top journals. And so that just made the environment sort of uh, this, uh, you know, really great environment. And then, of course, when I came back in 98, a few years after that, we hired Vernon Smith and his team, again, his whole team. And then he wins the Nobel Prize. And so then that, you know, creates that kind of idea. And that's the group that's over in the Interdisciplinary Center for Economic Science. And, and as I said, we had Henry Manny here, and Henry Manny is a, a famous person in law and economics. And so pretty soon there was a cluster of people at George Mason University who were not just good, but they were like internationally recognized as good. And, 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 and they were like-minded enough that there was synergies between all of them. So they weren't like so desperate that, you know, they – they couldn't talk to each other. They were like-minded enough that they could find common ground, but different enough that they'd have different focus of what their emphasis was. And so as a result, it made for a very, very fertile environment for studying economics in a serious way. Because despite the fact that we were here in the 80s and the Reagan revolution and all that stuff like that, we never talk about public policy. Hmm. Never, never, no one talked about public policy. Everyone talked about methodology of economics. How do we study economics? What's knowledge in economics? And analytics. What are the best tools by which to study economics? And the debates were ferocious because you had people who were philosophical in nature. You had people who were more mathematical in nature. You had people who were more statistical. You had people that were more historical. And they're all like vying for their different spots. And they're all the top people in those respective areas. So it's not like any one of them dominated over any of the other ones. And it created this amazing environment, which you just sit back as a student and like absorb as they would debate with each other in front of you. And so it was phenomenal. And then you'd have these old masters like, say, Bolding, who would then reflect upon it all, right? Like, you know, so he would sit back. He was, he was, you know, and he would like, you know, and then I would, my friend Dave Perchicko and I, we hung out with Bolding all the time. We went over to his house. We went to lunch with him, everything. And he would just sit there and he would like come up with these little quips about summarizing everything. It was like, again, like it was just like a smorgasbord of, of amazingness. And yeah, I have, yeah, I got nothing but... You know, very, very warm fuzzies about that time, even when I was sitting for my exams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The exams were fantastic. It was like it was like amazing. We like we talked to one another about doing the problem sets for our exams. Think about that. These are, these are the highest pressure things you do as a PhD student. I got to get through my qualifying exams, and we would sit and talk and debate and fight with each other over like what's going on with the exams. These true, false, and uncertain questions. This is what they'd ask us: true, false, and uncertain. No, this is how you do it. This is how you, and you know, stay up till night. My I, I took classes all through graduate school, Monday through Thursday. All the classes were seven twenty to ten o'clock at night. And so I was here, and then our seminar for us was on Friday afternoons. And then we would finish, and then we'd go out with all of us to what now is Bellissimo. At the time, it was a, it was a dive. It was called Pico's Pizzeria. And on Friday, they had half-price uh, pitch, pitchers, right? And so we'd go there. We'd get a bunch of pizzas. We'd have beer. And, like, all of a sudden, and, the, and my wife, my poor wife, she's, she's <laughs> a, you know, a, a sweetheart and always, you know, has been and amazingly supportive. But, you know, after a week of her teaching school, she'd pick me up and then she'd have to listen to people debate economics some more. And then on, on Saturdays, we would normally, like, work because there wasn't the Internet. So you'd come in, you'd work in the morning, and then, like, you'd probably go out with your friends that you're in graduate school to a movie that night. But, again, you'd sit around and talk about economics. And so the only time you would, like the, the the spouses or, or significant others ever had any reprieve from all this life of economics it was on Sunday when you didn't see people and you were like just hung out with them. So I used to go to Washington a lot with my wife and we just hung out or whatever. But uh, yeah, no, I, I it was it was amazing. And I was in graduate school with Dave Pachicko and Steve Horowitz, both of whom have had very successful careers in their own right. And I was inseparable from them. I mean, it was like, you know, hung out with them from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. It was awesome. So uh, as you've mentioned, NYU is an important part of the Mason story. You were there as a professor. Uh, Larry White was there as a professor. And Dan Klein went there for his Ph.D. So uh, who else was there? And could you explain NYU's impact on our department? Well, Rich Fink is a Ph.D. from NYU. And he was the founder of the Center for the Study of Market Processes. 
and uh, Don Lavoy was a PhD from NYU. Um, the NYU connection is due to the intellectual power of, of uh, Israel Kirzner, who started a program at NYU in the 70s. He went to graduate school in the 50s um, at NYU and then built a very strong career of himself uh, with his most famous book being uh, A Competition and Entrepreneurship, which was published in 1973. But he had a long history of publications and um, he, uh, one of the things that's really cool about the Buchanan archives is that you see conferences that Buchanan was involved in in the 1950s and you start seeing people like Israel Kirzner or Hal Demsetz showing up as young scholars. So like yourselves, like, so Israel Kirzner is like the two of you. And then Buchanan is like, I don't know, like a younger professor, but he's at this conference. And the next thing you know, there's Harold Demsetzer or Israel Kirzner at the conference too, and they're learning and they're talking about ideas. Anyway, so um, Kirzner started this program, and uh, prior to Kirzner having that program, um, the place where people that had interest in these kind of ideas, uh, they would have gone to uh, one of many universities in the South maybe, uh, there were very few of these schools in the Northeast. So the Northeast was really dominated by a lot of uh, Keynesian economists and MIT, Harvard-type economists about market failure theory and, and uh, that kind of stuff. And that's what you learned uh, in those places. And that was also true uh, for most of the nexus on the West Coast. However, UCLA, under Armin Alchin and Harold Demsetz, uh, was its own little enclave of what would be called price theoretic economics. And several universities in the South um, had components of that. The University of Virginia, obviously, uh, Virginia Tech, uh, uh, you know, obviously, but also places like Florida State, Clemson, uh, University of Georgia, uh, Emory University in Atlanta. Um, these were all schools that more or less had some people, Texas A&M, uh, uh, not University of Texas, but Texas A&M. And uh, so at different pockets, uh, at different times, students would go to these different places. And then when Kirzner started his program, a lot of students flocked to New York University. Um, New York University is a, a very well-known university, and so it was a highly ranked uh, department. And so going there was beneficial. Obviously, I should have mentioned Chicago. So <laughs> the first choice for elite students that have these kind of ideas that I care about would have been University of Chicago. That's where they would have gone uh, for most of that period of time. But then there was these other places that they would go. And, um, and so NYU uh, had uh, a, a couple very important graduates and a couple people who left before they graduated to get their degree elsewhere. But you'll also recognize Don Boudreau. Uh, did his master's degree at NYU and then went to Auburn for his PhD and then at UVA for his, his JD. Uh, uh, Roger Koppel, who's now a professor at Syracuse, uh, he uh, did his um, d uh, master's at NYU and then his PhD at Auburn. Um, and then uh, Maria Minetti, his wife, she's a PhD from uh, NYU. I was on her committee, actually. Um, and Bill Bommel was her thesis advisor, and she's at, at Syracuse, runs this entrepreneurship center. And so NYU had a couple areas. One of them was Austrian economics and history of economic ideas. And then they had faculty like Bill Bommel and, and Andy Schotter. So Andy Schotter was a game theorist and experimental economist who was a student of Oscar Morgenstern. So he had an appreciation of what Austrian economics was about, but he wasn't an Austrian. Right. Mm -hmm. And so but that meant that he didn't like dismiss you out of hand, uh, which, you know, many people did. Bill Bommel was a student. His PhD is from the London School of Economics. So, again, he, he wasn't sympathetic to Austrian economics, but he also wasn't completely like, you know, they shouldn't exist or something like that. And so the students flocked there and, and, and went there. And Don Lavoie was a very uh, illustrious graduate of the program. Uh, his dissertation became a, a book with Cambridge called Rivalry and Central Planning. Larry White was a student at UCLA, and his dissertation became a book called Free Banking in Britain, but he was hired as an assistant professor at NYU. And so he moved from UCLA to then to NYU as assistant professor. Mario Rizzo got his Ph.D. from University of Chicago, but then taught at, uh, university, uh, at NYU. The last really uh, sort of uh, significant 
uh, research-oriented economists that you would know that went through the NYU program as defined by the Rizzo uh, and Kirzner kind of errors would have been uh, George Selgin. Um, and uh, he's not on our faculty, but he, he was at Georgia for many years, and at, uh, but he was on the faculty here in, uh, for a short period of time in the 80s. Um, and uh, now he's at Cato and runs their alternative monetary uh, uh, group. But so NYU had this program which gave space to people that cared about methodological individualism, institutional analysis, um, and, and market process uh, orientation, spontaneous order theory, that kind of stuff. And so people like Dan Klein, you know, went there to study uh, and, and learn. Uh, Dan actually learned a lot of game theory when he was there. He, he's not the same uh, thing as like what Dan does now, which is more Adam Smith and whatever. He, when he was there, he was more doing economic theory. Uh, and applied economic theory and economic history in that regard, mm-hmm. um, but he, he, you know, he went to Irvine after after getting out of NYU, and um, and then I went there uh, as a assistant professor. So I taught there from uh, 1990 until 1998. Uh, in 1998, I was uh, both uh, uh, an, uh, like I had a, a research. My professorship got translated into a research professorship and i also had a job teaching at manhattan college and that would have been my future of my career i was offered a chance to be a dean at nyu but i would have been the dean when when i was offered the job and the dean explained what my job was going to be offered to me i turned to him and i said so you want me to be the dean of student problems and he said he said i wouldn't describe it quite like that and i said i would Uh, and so i didn't want to do that and so uh, i ended up by having to look that was my only avenue for retention and advancement at NYU uh, would have been to go into academic administration. And I didn't want to do that. And so then the next year I, I had the opportunity I was offered. I could have stayed where I was um, doing what I was doing. And uh, or I could have moved to Wisconsin. I was offered a professorship in Wisconsin um, or I could have moved to George Mason. So Walter Williams, uh, Tyler came to see me in, in New York and tried to convince me to, that I should come back to George Mason. And then Walter Williams put uh, the, you know, hard pressure on me uh, to come here. And so I ended up by moving back. Yeah. Where, where at in Wisconsin? A little school called Carthage College. Okay. And there's a, a guy who was one of the, the heads of the World Bank, a guy named Clausen, actually went to undergraduate school at oh, Carthage wow. College. And he established a professorship called the Clausen Chair and I was offered the Clausen Chair of Political Economy oh, at nice. Carthage College. Yeah, I'm from Wisconsin, so that's interesting. Yeah, so it's it, right outside of Kenosha. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, that's great. Well, um, this is where we're going to cut off the first episode here. So um, uh, I, I would say thank you for being here, but you're going to be here next week too. So okay. uh, I will, uh, I will just, uh, I will just read the outro here. Um, uh, and uh, we will continue this conversation with Pete Betke into next week. So, Loose Bacon Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University and is now available just about anywhere you can find podcasts. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, and Breaker. Special thanks to the wonderful folks at WGMU, including General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. Uh, you can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash EconSociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, and whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan and